This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview top scientists whose work in genomics is shaping the way we think about science and our world. According to the U.S. National Cancer Institute, 15,000 children and adolescents will be diagnosed with cancer in the United States this year. Sadly, almost 2,000 will die from their disease. Despite this truly heartbreaking statistic, research has actually improved the outlook for children with pediatric cancers. For example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, was a devastating childhood disease in the 1960s with five-year survival rates of only 10%. But today, that five-year survival rate is more than 90%. Next-generation sequencing, or NGS, is increasingly allowing scientists to better understand childhood cancer risk and biology. Today, I'm at the Center for Genome Sciences and Systems Biology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm here with Dr. Todd Drooley, professor of pediatrics and genetics at WashU. Todd is a pediatric oncologist and genomic scientist. He and his team focus on integrating computational and functional biology to characterize how rare individual germline variation influences the onset and outcome of pediatric cancer. He began our interview by discussing the genetics of early childhood cancers and how next-generation sequencing is reshaping our understanding of childhood cancers. The next generation sequencing era continues to demonstrate that the model we hold for cancer being driven almost completely due to acquired somatic mutations simply doesn't hold for early childhood cancers. There are mutations there, and they contribute, and that's not in question. But there are not enough mutations, and they are not highly penetrant enough to explain the incidence of cancer in children. So what I've been interested in is studying two things. One, how does germline variation integrate with the acquired somatic mutation? And typically, it seems that that combination affects regulation of pathways that are important for normal childhood development and growth, and how these things come together to have normal cells become cancerous cells at such an early age. Somatic mutations are DNA alterations that occur in cells. The mutations are passed along to the progeny of those cells through cell division. But somatic mutations are not passed on to children. Somatic mutations are typically caused by environmental factors like cigarette smoke or ultraviolet radiation, and they can drive cancer in adults. Germline mutations are DNA alterations that occur in germ cells, the cells that give rise to eggs and sperm. Unlike somatic mutations, germline mutations are passed on to children. Tan explained that childhood cancers are mostly due to germline mutations, and he explained how that impacts our understanding of these cancers. If we were to tell a family that their child has a club foot, a seizure disorder, a hole in the heart, no one would think that that was due to external mutation. They would think that that is a consequence of abnormal development. But the minute you say cancer, 
everyone's been trained to believe that's due to some external force. And they start thinking that it's the foods the children have eaten, it's the playgrounds they're playing on. And, you know, there's very, very little evidence for any of that being the cause of children's cancer. So the model where you take somebody's healthy, normal DNA and you compare that to their cancer DNA, and then you just use their healthy DNA to subtract and see what's unique to the normal DNA, in my view, is throwing away a lot of valuable information for children's cancers because there's a huge component of that cancer that's probably in their germline. We're not talking about one gene or one germline hit. It's three or four hypomorphic alleles from mom, a different three or four from dad, and they create a context of slightly dysregulated germline variability to where if by chance that somatic mutation falls on that background, now a normal cell can transform into a cancerous cell. Todd and his team use whole genome sequencing of pediatric cancer patients to understand the genetic changes that underlie childhood cancer. They also sequence the genomes of children who are at risk of developing cancer to understand the genetics of predisposition to childhood cancer. So we do two things. We study pediatric cancers with the Children's Oncology Group, which is a national, actually an international consortium of pediatric cancer treatment centers. And they are aggregating samples from all over the treatment area from these patients. So we have a good working collaboration with them, and we're about to launch the biggest sequencing study that's ever been done in pediatric cancer. Locally, I have created a clinic that focuses on children who have a predisposition to developing cancer. They they may not get cancer, but there's something that has an increased risk of developing cancer. Historically, we would think of these as being very well-known syndromes, Fanconi's anemia, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, neurofibromatosis, these types of things. But more recently, we realize that a lot of children have a predisposition to cancer without having a classical syndrome. And this is being borne out by using next-generation sequencing as a diagnostic tool. So the biggest referral that we have is from the children of young adults, late 30s, early 40s, who get diagnosed with a cancer. And so as the genetic workup ensues in that particular patient, and they find something, then the patient says, you know what, I've got two, three, four children, and I'm worried about their risk. And those children then get referred to us. By studying the germline DNA of children as well as their families, Todd can better understand the inheritance patterns of early childhood cancers. He and his team also combine that genetic data with longitudinal data on how the children are developing relative to their peers and siblings. So as part of our clinic, we have two research initiatives. One's purely clinical, where it's an annual questionnaire that families have the opportunity to fill out that gives us longitudinal demographic and phenotypic data on their child. How are they doing in school? Are they meeting their milestones? How do they compare to their siblings or their peers? And we can see if there's anything in that longitudinal data that may help inform what's driving that from a genetic perspective. So we also collect germline DNA from simple spit samples from not just the patient themselves, but the entire nuclear family. So we can compare what's inherited from mom, what's inherited from dad. Sometimes the children have de novo mutations. Uh, And then we can compare against their healthy full siblings to see what those differences are as well. 
Only about 10% of these children will actually develop a cancer, but then of course we bank the cancer and we can see what are the additional somatic mutations that have fallen on top of that genetic background. This really gives us a lot of, of strength to interrogate the inheritance patterns of these early childhood cancers. Given that childhood cancers are rare diseases, I asked Todd whether he could make statistically significant conclusions from the limited number of patients he sees in his clinic. Although the overall numbers of patients are small, Todd collaborates with the Children's Oncology Group to increase sample size. Todd and his team also use biological assays of induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPS cells, to test hypotheses that arise during their computational analyses. Well, yeah, that's a, a fantastic question that we always run into in pediatric cancer because any singular pediatric cancer is a rare disease. And so that's the beauty of working with the children's oncology group is because you can get sample sizes large enough to make statistically significant conclusions. So for, for our clinic, we probably only follow on the order of 150, 175 patients, and they have a variety of different conditions. Most of them, as I mentioned, don't actually get cancer. It's hard for us as a single institution to have enough patients to generate statistically significant conclusions when we're looking at epistatic mechanisms. But one thing we can do is we do a lot of work with human iPS cells. So we can collect cells from the children. If they have a cancer, we can collect skin cells at the time of their biopsy. We get a skin biopsy. We can make fibroblasts. From the IPS lines, we can direct the differentiation to blood or neurons or muscle, what have you, and really interrogate the developmental mechanisms that seem to fall out from our computational analyses. So sample size is a real challenge in Todd's work. We also discussed some of the other challenges he faces in studying the genetics of childhood cancers, trying to find clinically meaningful information by analyzing large data sets can be particularly challenging. There are practical challenges as far as building the infrastructure necessary to conduct the work. There are technical challenges in getting samples that are adequate to provide quality information for what we're looking for. But I think the biggest challenge is that you know we may not know it when we see it. We're asking complicated questions in small sample sizes. So computationally, there's difficulty in how do we computationally model this? How can we you know, filter through these massive data sets in a meaningful way that we're not just picking out noise by chance? We're actually identifying clinically meaningful things. So you know, we, we tend to restrict our questions to things that we already know and say, well, maybe you know, there's a constellation of variation in this pathway or that pathway or genes that do this or genes that have this sequence. And the minute you do that, you're limiting yourself, you know, which is, I think, against the intent of doing the large-scale sequencing, which you're supposed to be agnostic and open to just about anything. But when you do that, you can have such a mass of data, you can't see the signal, particularly if you have a population of 50 people. And so it's the data analysis that's providing a true challenge for us. I asked Todd if understanding the genetics of childhood cancers could also teach us about genetic mechanisms of adult cancers. 
Yeah, I think absolutely. So um, some of my colleagues here have already found that there are germline contributions to ovarian cancer in adult women. As our population of children that have a predisposition to cancer begins to age, what risks they have may be different. So even though they have the same germline effect, they may be prone to leukemia in childhood, they may be prone to lymphoma in their teenage years, they may be prone to neuro-oncology cancer, other things in adulthood. And now, you know, I think we can move out of just treating cancer as also predicting cancer. We're not there yet, but I think with enough work, you could put a precise number on who's really at risk, who needs to be monitored, what needs to be done. So, you know, I think there's benefits to doing this that really uh, move beyond just simply treating cancer, but predicting cancer, mitigating cancer risk, and, you know, hopefully avoiding the need to treat a cancer at all. So given that this work is relevant to predicting cancers, I asked Todd whether NGS might become an increasingly important component of cancer diagnostics and treatment decisions in the future. Absolutely. I think we're already seeing that. So in in some of the larger studies that have been conducted, the the NGS offers insight into certain subpopulations within the whole. I think the classic examples in pediatric ALL, we now have the Philadelphia-like cohort of children. The Philadelphia chromosome is a genetic abnormality that's common in ALL. It's caused by a specific DNA translocation where parts of chromosome 9 and 22 swap places. This translocation event results in an oncogenic gene fusion called BCR-ABLE. Children with Philadelphia chromosome-like ALL do have chromosome translocations, but they lack the specific BCR-ABLE gene fusion. Philadelphia chromosome-like ALL has typically been associated with poor outcomes in children. And there was a subgroup of children that had a similar outcome but didn't have the BCR-ABLE fusion. And so transcriptomics showed that they had an expression profile almost identical to children that did have the BCR-ABLE fusion. And so now treating that subgroup of children with tyrosine kinase inhibitors the same way you would treat a child that has the BCR-ABLE fusion has improved outcomes dramatically for that subset, and that came solely through transcriptome analysis in these patients. So as we add more layers of NGS to our diagnostics, we will start to be able to, to really refine populations into multiple different subgroups that require different therapeutic options. I really respect Todd and all the other physicians, nurses, researchers, and care providers that work to heal and cure sick children. I asked Todd what motivated him to do this work. Well, I, I love the challenge of it. This is a huge challenge. And so I, I love the, the challenge of the research questions. I love the ability to interact with these patients and their families. Clinically, I've been doing this long enough now to where I've gotten high school graduation announcements, college graduation announcements, marriage announcements, birth announcements, and that's a great feeling because you remember when that family was terrified and that patient was critically ill, and now they're out there leading the life that they always wanted, and that is a very, very satisfying feeling. And of course, there's bad days. Uh, you know, of course there is, and, and the bad days should 
you know, kick you in the behind a little bit and make you work a little bit harder to have fewer bad days. And so, you know, most of the days are good. 70% of the children that are diagnosed with cancer are cured. So it, it's not a death sentence, but there's a lot of work to be done because we're trying to, you know, replace an entire lifetime there. So that's, uh, that's a very tall order. And I, you know, it's a challenge that I enjoy taking on and, and seeing if we can make a dent in this. So NGS is helping us to better understand childhood cancers and how they differ from adult cancers. Thankfully, research has dramatically improved the treatment and outcomes of children with cancer. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Samuel Mulukangas from Blueprint Genetics in Helsinki, Finland. We'll be discussing oligonucleotide selective sequencing, or OSSeq, and the technology behind genetic testing here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>